I, uh, I assume the exclamation point on there is just because I am just too hyper and I run around up here, but uh, that's my guess. But uh, thank you. It is good to be back with you guys, as I say, I'm pretty sure every week, because it is good to be with you all. Um, my wife is still pregnant, so if I like run off stage, it's because my phone went off and some, I'll leave my iPad, just pick up where I left off. Um, it'll be fine. But um, we have been praying for one o'clock today, so... Who knows? Just get through the service, then we'll swing by the hospital. So um, join me in that. But it is uh, good to be with you. I wanted to cover a few kind of business things before we jump in. Um, it's nice to be able to string a few sermons together now, um, opposed to being here kind of one week here, one week there. Um, as, as was mentioned, I'll be here through the first week of June um, is the plan. And so we are going to be, for that time, I wanted to look at one series. And so we're going to tackle the Sermon on the Mount. All right, the whole thing, um, I think we can get through it, we'll see. But I mentioned a few sermons ago that I think the Sermon on the Mount is like the quintessential teaching of Jesus. Like it is so imperative to our lives and it's been mis, kind, of mis, you know, kind of misinterpreted, forgotten, um, shoved aside because it is a difficult teaching. But we're going to tackle the whole thing. So I want to invite you guys to what I started doing um, two weeks ago. I just started reading the sermon every day. Okay, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I'm an average reader as far as speed. It took me about eight and a half minutes. So um, do it while you're eating breakfast, all right? It's simple enough. But just read it. You don't have to think too much of it. Just digest it. Get it inside you. Um, so often just getting familiar with the text um, is kind of the first obstacle. So just, I encourage you guys to join me in that. Just read it every day. Um, some days I miss, and then that's okay. I just do it the next day. We don't have to like freak out about it or anything, all right? Um, but just try to digest that. Um, secondly, in your bulletins, you will see... Um, this yellow piece of paper. See that one there? Yeah, yellow piece of paper. We are going to be going into the month of March, and the month of March coming out of our fast. Congrats, you made it through February was the fast, right? You can eat again. Hopefully you didn't stop eating for a whole month. Um, you're probably not with us if you did that, um, but... <laughs> that was a bad joke. Um, but anyway, take this piece of paper. March is going to be focused on prayer. And so as a church, we're going to kind of rally around um, prayer coming out of the fast. And so um, this slip of paper we're going to use at the end of my sermon. Um, I'm going I'm to challenge you guys to write down maybe a, a request or, or a prayer that, that you may have. And just the, kind of a foresight for you, what we're going to do with these is you are going to put it on the prayer wall. And then someone else is going to possibly take yours to pray through it throughout the week. So um, keep that in mind as you, you know, don't write down like your deepest, darkest secret on here, all right? Someone else may read it. You don't have to put your name or anything like that, um, but it's just hopefully a, a good way for us to begin praying for one another um, as we go out this week. So, so keep this kind of handy. Like I said, I'll refer to it in the back of my sermon or the end of my sermon this morning. So um, will you guys pray with me as we jump in? <coughs> Heavenly Father, God, we do, we come before you, Lord, as we have this whole weekend, starting last night on Saturday night service. Um, God, this morning, um, you are present, Lord. Open our eyes to see you. Open our hearts to hear you, um, God, as we have been in your presence, Lord, this, uh, this morning. And so, God, as, as we open the scriptures, as we maybe get challenged in new ways, as we look at things differently, um, get, God, may you open our minds, Lord. We need your help. Um, and so we invite you here, Holy Spirit, come into this place, God, so we can understand you more, we can grow in who you are, and we can um, continue to bond as community, Lord. And so, God, we, we love you and we invite you into this space. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you were to summarize all of Jesus' teaching, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the entire story of Jesus, all of his teaching, everything he did, everything he said into one theme or one purpose, what would that be? 
Anybody? Take a stab. Throw a, throw a thought out. Love, grace. Anything else? Salvation. Okay. Good. Certainly, love, grace, salvation are in his teaching. But what I believe the overall theme and purpose, what I believe the scripture teaches, what Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, what biblical scholars throughout the ages would say is that the central reason Jesus came or the purpose was the kingdom of God, okay, which embraces love, grace, and and salvation. But those are a part of what his ultimate theme was, was the kingdom of God, Okay, and so, so what we're doing in this sermon is I'm going to unpack, probably challenge, hopefully make you a bit uncomfortable with maybe some ideas that, that we have always kind of thought of the gospel, always kind of thought of heaven, and, and I think it's going to make you a bit uncomfortable at times because it made me a bit uncomfortable at times when I kind of came across some of this. Okay, and so, so I want to I kind of say that as a, as a launching point. We are beginning a kind of an intro into the Sermon on the Mount because I believe the Sermon on, a, on the Mount is about how to live into the kingdom of God. Okay, and so that's why I entitled this sermon, A Sermon About a Sermon, because um, that's all it is. I'm talking about what Jesus said. That's all it is, all right? And so we need to, though, unpack this idea of the kingdom of God, something that we've heard, something that we're familiar with, but maybe um, what I'm going to challenge this morning is we've let a bit of what I call folk theology slip in. And what I mean by that is there are certain things in the Christian life we have heard our entire life coming to church, but yet we've never really investigated to say, is it, is it really what Scripture's teaching, or is it just kind of what's happened slowly and naturally? Not that it's completely wrong, but what I think is we're going to twist a bit of maybe some of our understandings about the gospel, about heaven, and we're going to see maybe things in a different light. So in your Bibles, flip to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. We also have it on the screen for you. But in Matthew chapter 4, this is verses before the Sermon on the Mount begins. Okay, This is about two paragraphs before the Sermon on the Mount begins. This is in the same kind of sequence of time. Okay, that it's happening. This is kind of inaugurating that. So in Matthew chapter 4, this is where he's going to lay out um, the thesis or the purpose of Jesus' coming. He says this. He says, from that time, this is a turning point, right? From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, let's unpack that. That word repent, generally that conjures up ideas kind of twofold. One, you see people holding signs somewhere on the street picketing something, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, okay? That's generally the first image. That is not a good image, right? I've never found good theology on picket signs. That's a freebie for you, all right? But we've seen that, that these people kind of saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Or we see the other kind of picture of repentance that comes to mind is us buried off in a, in a back room somewhere, very emotional, confessing our sins to God. Okay, that's generally the idea. Yes, confession is a piece of repentance. But what does Jesus mean when he says, repent, Okay, repent is this Greek word metanoia. Okay, and metanoia means kind of literally change of mind. Or the Old Testament understanding of repent was to turn. Okay, so turn around, go a different direction. But what I think Jesus is doing here is when he says repent, he says think about the world in a whole new way. That he comes and he brings something completely different than the world has ever seen. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven. All right, now as Westerners, we have a hard time with the idea of kingdom because we don't live in a kingdom. We live in a democracy. 
Okay, but to understand kingdom, think of it as a king or where a king rules and reigns. All right? So Jesus is saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven where God's rule and reign is. Okay, now we have a bit of a problem with this because then we get to this word heaven. And heaven has all sorts of images that pop up in our mind. But I think part of the confusion is this that Mark, um, I'm sorry, Mark, Luke, and John, they use different language here. Okay, they use language kingdom of God, okay, as I said earlier today. But why then does Matthew say kingdom of heaven? Which again, I think is a very different word, but I think it's the same context. Well, what Matthew's doing is Matthew is writing to a very orthodox, very conservative Jewish audience. And even today, Orthodox Jews will not write or say the name God. Okay, even today, they will spell it G-D because they have a very high reverence and fear of the name of God. And so they just don't speak the name of God. And so Matthew, writing to this conservative audience, is instead of using kingdom of God, he says kingdom of heaven. But the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are the exact same idea. Okay? So he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, here, now. All right, in order for us to understand the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, we have to begin maybe with the first bit of what it is not. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is not where you go when you die. Okay? That's a bit of the folk theology, right? The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is not where we go when we die because Jesus says it is at hand. More often than not in the scriptures, when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven, he is saying it is here, it is now, it is in this place at this time. Not some future disembodied, we escape somewhere, we're floating above the clouds playing harps. Okay, we have to get that image out of our mind. Jesus is saying repent because it is at hand. And he begins to equate the kingdom of God with his very presence, that Jesus is the embodiment of the kingdom of heaven in this place, on this earth, in this time. Okay, we have to get this because if it's only this distant reality, that changes a lot about what, the way we practice our faith, the way we understand our faith, and the way that we begin to kind of embrace the teachings of Jesus. But Jesus is saying, listen, think of the world in a whole new way because the kingdom of God is here now. Here and now in this place, it is at hand. Okay, maybe the second question that'll help us get this. Why was, and feel free to take a stab, why was Jesus killed by the Romans and really the religious establishment of the day? Why was Jesus murdered? What? For us? Huge piece. Blasphemy? Getting closer? Yeah. Think about it. Jesus was killed for the same reason that any martyr throughout history has been killed. Because he confronted the powers that be. Now, obviously, Jesus' master kind of plan, what he had going on, was for us. Right? It was for salvation. Was, that's the critical piece that he understood behind it. But we have to recognize that Jesus bursts on the scene in this little corner of this little area of the Roman Empire named Galilee. He comes on the scene. He's there. And he begins to say things to the powers that be that say, my kingdom's not of this world. He stands right before Herod, before he's about to be crucified. And he said, this is not my kingdom. 
He is presenting a new way, just like anyone in history who says, you are not in charge, I am, generally gets killed by that power, right? He is presenting something new, something fresh, something that is a new way to think about the world. And when that begins to challenge Rome, when that begins to challenge the religious establishment of the day, they don't like that. And so they, they scheme and they plot to get him murdered. And so when we begin to kind of put Jesus in this context, we understand that there is kind of this like divine subversion going on, or right? that Jesus is offering a new way to look at the world. He's, he's subverting the ways of the world in the here and now. He's offering a new kingdom, a new perspective, a new way to view the world that isn't like anything we've seen before. And I think this is why we have to be so careful when we begin to mix nationalism and the gospel. Okay, hear me on this. America, democracy, is not the gospel. It was not sent necessarily from God. I think God is involved in it. But the kingdom of God is not democracy. It's not the American way of life. Right? Because if the kingdom of God is something new and something fresh and something different, then at its core it will offend every kingdom on earth throughout time because it is not of this world. And again, don't think disembodied somewhere else, but think like a new way to think of the world. If Jesus is offering something new and different, it will offend every kingdom on earth at some point or another. That's the nature of the gospel, the nature of the kingdom of God, because it is different. It will challenge us in every way. We will think of the world differently. So when we begin to mix nationalism and the gospel, we, we're really going to miss the gospel if we do that. Don't get me wrong, I'm grateful to live in this country, but we have to be able to separate those things and recognize that at some level it will kind of subvert, it will challenge, because that is exactly what Jesus did to Rome, the religious establishment, and continues to do to every kingdom in the world today. Is he offers something different, it is at hand here and now. So if the kingdom of God is here, it is at hand, what do we do with the times when Jesus also talks about something future, something, something to come? Well, what generally we talk about is, is that this, this idea of the kingdom of God is now and not yet. Okay, or another way to say it is we are in the time between the times. Okay, that God has announced, or Jesus has announced the kingdom. He has inaugurated it, which is like the fancy theological term, if you want to sound really smart, is inaugurated eschatology. I say it because it does make me sound smarter. And that's also why I wear glasses, because it makes me look smarter. So, inaugurated eschatology. It is that Jesus has come, he has announced, right? That's what the word gospel means, euangelion. It's the proclamation of good news, it is the announcement of. So Jesus comes, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand, but it's also something yet to come. That when Jesus first came as a preacher and a teacher and as a rabbi, he's announcing the kingdom of heaven, but he will come again and he will consummate the kingdom of heaven. He will bring it to its completion and it will be fully established here on earth. Right? Because again, it is not something that's distant, but it is something that Jesus says over and over is at hand. It is near. It is present. It is where Jesus is. So it is now, but it is also not yet. It is inaugurated, and that word eschatology means end times. It is something to come. So the now and the not yet. And this is unbelievably important because as we look at Scripture, and we'll look at Revelation 21 in a few minutes, 
But that passage is really, again, that it has begun, it is breaking into the story now, but it is also something that is yet to be fully consummated, that is yet to be fully shaped and realized. But the good news about this is is this means that the eternal life begins now. That the gospel is not something we prepare to die for. We don't just sit around and wait to die, but rather we begin here and now, right? Russell Crowe and Gladiator, what we do in this life echoes in eternity, right? Like, what, he's really more true than he realizes, right? Is what we do now does launch into eternity. This is the importance of Christians being involved in the world, involved in environmental issues, involved in, in creating the world in a beautiful way because we are beginning to establish the kingdom here and now. Right, Because Jesus says, it is at hand. Think about it. This is God's good creation. Right? He wants to continue to foster and renew and restore his good creation. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So um, John chapter 10, we have this one on the screen too. This is one of those verses that I would say is also in Jesus' kind of thesis or purpose for why he came. And he says this. Says the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Okay, think about the language he uses that they may have life, not something distant, not something eternal life, even, but he says life here, now, and have it to its fullest, have it in abundance. Because he has come and he, he offers a new paradigm, a new way to see the world that's different than anything the world's ever seen. And he says you can have it here and now and it is the ultimate way. To, it is the abundant life. Now we go wrong often on this verse because we take this and say, okay, if the life is abundant, well, I'm still kind of, my kingdom's at play, battling the kingdom of God. And so if I think life abundant, I think, okay, I want all the wealth, I want all the fame, all the prosperity, all that. And we think that is the life abundant. But if Jesus is offering something new, abundance looks different in the kingdom of God than it does in America. Abundance looks much different in the kingdom of God, and it may mean things like loving your enemy, things like picking up your cross daily, things like dying to yourself, like the first to become last. Think about that. That, Jesus says, is the abundance of life. That is the way to a life that is everything that it was created to be. And so when we take this and we say, okay, life abundant, that means everything I can imagine right now, we have to remember that Jesus is offering a new way of life, and that life abundant may look drastically different than we think now. I would argue it will. It will look much different than we imagine. But as we follow, we trust and say, you know what? Jesus says it's the life and the life abundant. And so I follow, I trust, and I obey. And I try to strive to live that kingdom life now, recognizing that it will look different. It will be difficult at times, but it will be worth it, right? Like think about, think about the, you know, Jesus, when he told his parables, he's speaking of the kingdom of heaven. And I think it's Matthew 13. Yeah. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Okay, we read that, and we tend to think, I have to give up everything for the treasure. But the the story is not about what you give up. The story is about what the man found. It is the fact that he found this treasure, and he says, I'll do anything to have that. What Jesus says is, I have the life and the life abundant. That when we stumble across this, it's not about what we have to give up. It's about, man, we have found this. And as I begin to live the kingdom life, I'll do whatever it takes to receive this. This is the treasure. 
even if it doesn't look like the American dream. Because that is the treasure. That is the way of life. Jesus promises us that. And so we begin to kind of wrestle with that idea. We begin to live into the kingdom of God, and we have to throw away our kind of kingdoms that tend to conflict with that. So I mentioned a few weeks ago um, about a guy named Dallas Willard who wrote a book called The Divine Conspiracy. And I, as I mentioned then, I think it is the most important book written in the last 100 years. Uh, so get it, read it. It's thick. It's difficult to read, but read it. Um, and what he says in that <coughs> is he points out that there seems to be this disconnect between life and faith. Okay, in 2014, the Pew Research Center found that 70.6% of American adults claim to be Christian. Okay, 70.6%. They self-identified as Christians. That's actually down about 6 to 8% from a few years earlier. And so if we, if we look at that, 70.6% of Americans, that is a massive, massive majority, right? They claim that they are, they identify as Christian. They, they identify to follow the rabbi who said that we can have life and life abundant. So we look at that, then we look at the church, we look at the world today, and we think, man, but the church seems to not have any power or not have any, like, why is the world so broken in America if the vast majority claim to follow the guy who said that life is abundant? And what I want to argue is it's not that we, it's not because we haven't taught enough, but I would say that it's, it's, it's because of what we have taught. Does that make sense? Like, you know, I forget that there's an old leadership axiom, right, that says, like, your systems are, are, are created to exactly produce the results you're seeing. Does that make sense? So, like, everything that we do in life, like, the reason you are who you are is a result of many, many decisions that produce exactly what those results brought. So what I want to argue is that the reason we see this disparity is not because the church hasn't taught enough, but it's because of what we have taught. Right? So this is, this is what uh, Dallas Willard calls it. He calls it the gospel of sin management. Okay, and this is going to be a bit, um, I hope to, this is where the uncomfortability comes a bit, all right? So hang with me. Don't stone me yet, all right? Let me get to the end of it, all right? Um, which, by the way, Jesus was often wanted to be killed after he preached, so um, I'm doing okay, I guess. I haven't been wanting to be killed. But he says this, okay, there's, there's, in evangelicalism, there's two predominant ways we teach. The first is on the conservative side, the right, okay? And again, don't think necessarily politically this is the way we approach scriptures, but the right teaches that atonement is everything or forgiveness is everything, okay? They teach that forgiveness of sins, that is the gospel, that is the entire story. But what I want to argue is that that is an unbelievably huge cornerstone piece of the gospel, but it is not the gospel in its entirety. That it is a huge, important element that the reason we celebrate communion every week is because without the cross, without forgiveness, we have no gospel. But it is not the gospel. It is a part of the gospel. Okay, because the gospel is about Genesis to Revelation. It is about God renewing and restoring shalom in the world. And the cross is how God does it through that he goes through the cross. The reason we can love our enemies is because we serve a teacher who died for his enemies. Okay, and we'll get to that in a few weeks. But that is, the cross is, is, is so important. But if atonement is everything, what do we do with the Sermon on the Mount? What do we do with Jesus' teachings and healings? If it's only about forgiveness, why rearrange the chairs on the Titanic? Because it's going down. And so if forgiveness is everything then we miss something greater. Because if forgiveness is the only piece of the gospel, 
then this Christian life is about us huddling up, managing our sins, and preparing to die. Right? If forgiveness is everything, then the whole story is about something somewhere else where we escape, where we fly away somewhere, and we then are, oh, whew, we made it. We managed our sin well. Okay, if, if that is forgiveness. Now, again, forgiveness is unbelievably important. The cross, without that, we have nothing. Hear me on that. But if we make that everything, we miss the fuller picture of the gospel. Okay, so that's the right. Well, the left, okay, the more liberal when they approach scriptures, they say that social justice is everything. And so they begin to see, they see the work of Jesus and the way he confronted broken systems, the way that, that he healed. We begin to look at, at freedom and happiness as the ultimate goal. Well, the problem with that then is that sin needs to be managed in order to foster happiness, and happiness becomes the goal. Okay, but as even my four-and-a-half-year-old will know, happiness is fleeting. And so if it's all about social justice, then that also misses the mark. And so what the gospel does is it stands kind of in between these two, and it says that everything is about the now and the not yet kingdom, that it's about forgiveness, but it's also about breaking systems of oppression and bringing freedom, that it is about forgiveness of sins, it's about the cross, but it's also about renewing a world back to the way God intended it to be. The gospel stands in the gap and says, yes, it's this and it's this, and it's so much more. Right, and so, so when we begin to picture this, we have to recognize that this changes, this begins to change kind of everything we believe, because what we've been taught, and I would say that the, the right is generally what's predominantly been taught in churches. Again, hugely important, but it's a piece of the story. We miss the greater picture if we only look at a piece of it. That what God is doing through the cross is he's bringing about shalom, he's bringing about this gospel He's bringing about this new way. He's saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, here and now, in this place. It's about an offer of the new kind of life that we live into in this time. That is what it's about. Look at this quote we have uh, from Dallas Willard in the book. He says this. He says, it is left unexplained how it is possible that one can rely on Christ for the next life without doing so for this one. Trust him for one's eternal destiny without trusting him for the things that relate to Christian life. Is this really possible? Surely it is not. Not within one life. He says, how foolish it is to trust him for eternity, but not trust him for Monday and Tuesday. Right? Like, like you're going to trust him with eternity, time that will never end, but you're not going to trust him from Monday through Saturday. He says, that's a disconnect. He says, how can God change our entire future but mean nothing for now? If the gospel is just about preparing to die, we have big issues. It's really not that great news for right now. It's not great news for the world, right? Look at what C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, maybe one of the most important books ever written outside the Bible. And he says this, I think it's around chapter 7, and he's talking about how we, have to, we are like, um, we, he, he kind of draws the analogy of tin soldiers, we're like pretending to be like God, okay? It's, it's kind of the analogy he's drawing. And then when we become like God, we slowly become God. And this is what he says. He says, the real son of God is at your side. He's beginning to turn you into the same kind of thing as himself. He is beginning, so to speak, to inject his kind of life and thought, his zoe, which is Greek for life, into you. Beginning to turn the tin soldier into a live man. The part of you that does not like that is the part that is still tin. How great is that? I love that. Because I think the problem comes is this, is if we accept a gospel of sin management, 
what happens is then we, there's kind of two distortions I think that this comes from. And it comes from our misconception of the last days, and it comes from that coupled with current affairs and modern technology. Okay, so what, what we tend to think is, is as we look at the last days, we get this, this, this belief or the system of belief that I think is maybe a half-truth at best, and we see this system of belief that the world is going to get darker and darker and darker and darker and more evil and more evil and more evil, then God's going to pull his divine nuke out and just blow the thing up. Okay, that's kind of, if, if it's just about forgiveness, it's like, okay, let's get out of here before God blows the thing up. But the problem then is, again, it's, didn't in Genesis God say over and over, this is good, this is good, this is good. Then at the end he says, this is very good. If the world's about God blowing up the earth, then why did he create good creation? Okay, is, is if it's not about here and now in this place, then, then what happens is we get this idea that the world's just going to get worse till he blows it up. And again, we get this when we read passages of scripture that talk about the end days. Uh, we see things like there'll be wars and rumors of wars. Yes, there are wars and rumors of wars. Watch CNN for a little bit, right? Like there are wars and rumors of wars. And then we see things like, oh, there'll be earthquakes. I lived in Napa when the big earthquake hit and I screamed like a girl at 3 a.m. I had no idea what was going on. I was terrified, terrified. But we read about it. It's a really funny story. One day I'll tell you, my wife was like, why are you screaming like my daughter? Uh, but but we, we hear about earthquakes and then we see earthquakes and we're like, oh, are we in the end times? Let me answer that. Yes. And we've been for 2,000 years, we've been in the end times. Peter, in Acts 2, stands before the crowd at Pentecost. He quotes the prophet Joel, who is speaking of the end times, and he essentially says, we are in the end times. Okay, all the end times mean is it's the time between Jesus' ascension and his consummation when he comes again. It's the time between the times. We are in the end times. And the reason it seems like it's getting darker and darker and darker is because we have things like Twitter and a phone that when a bomb goes off in the Middle East, I get an update, it instantly dings my phone, I click on it, and I can see live pictures of it. For the first time in human history, we have instant access to the entire world. That means we hear about every conflict. We hear about every issue. I remember, I shared it last time, I think, too, that when the Boston bombing happened, I was at an In-N-Out outside of L.A., Standing in line, my phone dings, I click on the link, and immediately, within five minutes, I'm looking at live pictures of the Boston, uh, the finish line, where the bombs went off. I remember a couple years earlier, I was at a wedding, and my phone dinged, and I look, and it was, I found out that Bin Laden had been killed. I mean, we live in an instant world, with instant access, but any historian, right, anyone that knows anything at all about history is going to look at today, and are we really in the darkest time of all time? I mean, it's dark. There's evil. ISIS is evil. There's darkness that happens. But think about Nazi Germany. Think about, like, the fall of Rome. Think about the Crusades. Those were dark, dark times, much darker than we are now, if we're honest. And if we're honest, too, the problem is from the West, we see that the church is on decline, but across the world, it is exploding. South America, the church in South America is growing like crazy, in China, it's growing faster than Acts. I mean, it is absolutely exploding. Like, we have this perception that the world's getting darker and darker, but God is on the move. We may not sense it here, but it is growing, it is expanding, and it's growing in ways we've never seen before. So, flipping your Bibles to Revelation 21. 
Because it's important that we understand and we, we kind of battle this idea that the, that the story is getting worse and worse. Because what we see at the end of the story is that the story actually is about God improving and establishing and consummating the kingdom. The kingdom that is now and not yet. That we live now into the eternal life that is available in the not yet. So Revelation 21, <clears throat> verses 1 through, we'll look through 1 through 5. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Okay, already you're like, Kevin, it says it's new. What are you doing, right? Well, that word new is the word kainos. Okay, and my question is, has anyone ever bought a used car? Anyone? Okay, I have. Did you ever call that used car new? Right? That word new, just like in English, can mean a couple different things. Okay, that word kainos can mean new in origin. So like when my daughter, if she's ever born, okay, she ever comes, she will be new. She's a newborn. She's brand new, brand young, new in origin, all of that, okay? But then also we have this idea that the word new can be new in quality, or maybe a better way to say it is renewed. And what I want to argue is that what the, the author's doing here is he's saying, then I saw a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. That it's not that God blew it up and created something new, Okay, but rather that he renewed heaven, he renewed earth. And listen as it goes on. It says, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Okay, so the first earth is gone and the first heaven. But think about it, verse 2, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Right, so if the first heaven and the first heaven, you know, earth is gone, how is the new city coming from heaven still? That make sense? Okay, so it says, the first, and I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. That sounds a whole lot like Genesis 2, or Genesis 1. When God and man are together, like read Revelation 21, read Genesis 1. Read Revelation 22, and then read Genesis 2. The story is about God recreating shalom, bringing the world back to the perfection that we see in the last few passages. It says in verse 3 again, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. <coughs> and God himself will be with them as their God. And my favorite verse in all the scriptures it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne was saying, Behold, I am making all things new. The kingdom of heaven is about initiating and sparking the new way of life that will one day be consummated. And in the new kingdom of God that's fully established, there won't be death. Death will be no more. Tears will be no more. Cancer will be no more. Terrorism will be no more. Brokenness, broken families, broken marriages, all of that will be no more. He is making something new here and now. It begins in this place, in this time, and it ends when it's fully established here and now. Like this changes the way we view work. It changes the way we view our interactions with others. It changes art. It changes beauty. It changes everything when we begin to recognize that what we do in this life echoes in eternity, right? Like that gives hope. It gives meaning to this in the here and now. But the problem is, again, as we look around, we see the evil there is there are multiple kingdoms at play, isn't there? 
that although it's been initiated, there are still kingdoms. There are the kingdom of ISIS in North Korea, and if we're honest, there's the kingdom of Kevin. And there's your kingdom that rubs against the kingdom of God. That we still look and say, I know the way to life abundant, so I'm going to call the shots. I'll live the way I want to live. And slowly, those are the pieces of tin that God is working to turn back into a live man. Right? And so we see this in um, a guy by the name of Richard Rohr, um, who's a Franciscan. He says it this way. He says, it's all over can be understood in two different ways. Either it's going to hell or it's becoming heaven. How great is that, right? It's as the Revelation says that the kingdoms of the world are dissolving like snow. That the wars we see are the kingdoms of this earth slowly breaking down. They're battling, but God is establishing the kingdom of God, a new way to see the world. He's saying, repent, think about the world differently, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Flip to Matthew chapter 6, and this will end where we will end. Matthew chapter 6, about the middle of the way through the Sermon on the Mount. And we see this in Jesus' teaching, and I think we, we begin to miss this because we're so familiar with it. Okay, in, in that book, Divine Conspiracy, Dallas Word talks about how familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. That the more familiar we are with something, the more we get kind of, kind of doled to it. Right? The more we know something, the less we know it to some extent. And so listen to what Jesus says. This is him instructing us on how to pray. He says... In verse, uh, verse 9, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is Jesus saying the kingdom is established, and when we pray, we are, bringing, we are praying for the kingdom of God to be fully consummated, fully established in our marriages, in our work, in our school, in our day-to-day life. We are saying, God, your kingdom come, your will be done here, now, in this place. That it's not about some distant, disembodied thing, but about the here and now. And listen, to pray your kingdom come presupposes my kingdom go. Right? If, I can, if I'm going to pray your kingdom come, that means my kingdom has to go. If I'm going to pray your will be done, that means my will must go. That I cannot have both, right? Jesus, right? We, you, you cannot serve two masters. He's saying, submit to the kingdom of God, because when that is established, then our kingdom goes. Think about Jesus in Gethsemane, right? He's praying moments before he's arrested and taken to the cross. It says in Luke that he's sweating blood because he's so intense, and he says, God, if there's any other way, but not my will, but yours be done. That's Jesus embracing the Lord's prayer. That's him saying, not my will, but yours be done. And so church, as we embrace or begin this kind of mo- or this month of prayer, I ask that we, we begin to pray like this. We begin to, to look at our neighbors, and maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's for you. It's like, man, I've, I've firmly established my kingdom, and I need to pray that God will, his kingdom will come so mine can go. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's a time of confession for you this morning. Maybe it's you know your neighbor, and they're going through a hard time, and you're like, man, God, would your kingdom come in their life? Maybe it's with your coworkers where you're saying, man, I need the kingdom of God to establish. And listen, it's not about a spiteful way. Don't pray your kingdom come because you hate the guy. All right? It's really easy for us to turn, that in, turn this into that. Like, man, I hate Karen. I pray that the kingdom comes for her, right? 
Like, it's really easy, but what Jesus is doing is he's saying, listen, pray that the kingdom of God establishes out fully in their life and in our life, in our neighbor's life, in our coworker's life, in whatever it is. That we begin to pray that the kingdom would come in our marriage, would come in, in my kid's life, that I'd be, I'd be the kind of father that lives in the kingdom of God, that leads my family like someone who lives and is in the eternal kind of life now. And so what I want to do is I want to invite the worship team up. And again, I want you to pull this, this sheet out. And this is what we're going to do. We're going to just spend a couple minutes, just two minutes or so, and we're just going to be praying through this, praying, sitting kind of in this idea of your kingdom come, your will be done. And I want you to take it, and I just want you to, to write out a request. And again, maybe it's for you. Maybe it's time to confess that my kingdom is there, God, and we're praying that it would go. Maybe it's for your neighbor. Maybe it's for one another. Where you know someone in here is just going through a hard time and you're just praying, God, would your kingdom come in their life? And so whatever it is, I just want you to be able to take a couple minutes, just write it down. And then when we're done, on your way out, I just ask that you pop it in the prayer wall over there. And when you throw it in the prayer wall again, I ask that you put yours in there and then take someone else's out. Okay, as a way of just kind of being able to foster prayer among one another. That we begin to pray for each other. Okay, that, that as we are praying, someone is praying for us as well. And as a community, we kind of engage in this. Um, so, like I said, a couple minutes you'll spend with this. I'll come back up and close this time of prayer. And then, uh, and then we'll celebrate communion together and remember um, the cross as well. So, spend a couple minutes while the band just kind of plays behind us. And I'll be up in a few to, to close our time.
our Father in heaven, Lord, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, may your kingdom come, your will be done in Sebastopol as it is in heaven. May it be done in our classrooms as it is in heaven, in our workplaces, in our marriages, in our families, in our day-to-day, in our Mondays and Tuesdays. God, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, God, we give you these requests. We give you these pieces of paper, God. We, we submit them to your kingdom, God, so that you can begin to work in our hearts to release, God, our hold on our kingdoms. God, may you work in our hearts that we begin to shed away the, the, the things that rebel against your kingdom and, God, that we submit to your kingdom here now in this place. Help us not only to embrace that, but help us to embody it for others. Help us to embrace the teachings of, of, of you, Lord, that we embrace the kingdom way here and now. So, God, we thank you for this space. We thank you for this time that we've had. And, God, may these prayers kind of resonate throughout our week as well as we pray for one another. So, God, hear our cries. And we thank you, Lord, for loving, for being patient, for the cross, uh, for your work, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.